This is Ryan Underwood in the studio with From the Frontline. Tonight, we are dealing with living by faith, and we are joined by Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Dr. Hammond. Good evening. What does it mean to live by faith? Well, to any Protestant Christian, we would think of sola fide, salvation is by the by faith alone, salvation is by grace alone, received by faith alone. So for Christian means without faith, it's impossible to please God and the just shall live by faith. But in missions, to live by faith means to trust God to supply all our needs without a short income, without fundraising, without taking up offerings as such, but to trust God as our source to be one who's willing to go into the field without short income to basically step out in faith. So living by faith in missions is understood to be a, a kind of shorthand to explain the model that we're using is the faith model of um, not doing open fundraising, but trusting God to supply needs through the free will offering of God's people. What are the biblical models for missions? Well, the very first missionary in the Bible is probably Abraham, in Acts 12, where he is blessed and ought to be a blessing to all the families of the nations of the earth and told to leave his family, to leave his father's house, to leave his home, his country, and to go to the country that God will guide him to. And Abraham's the father of the faithful. Jonah was a very reluctant missionary indeed, but he was a missionary, probably one of the most effective ones, if you think in terms of his preaching, which must be one of the shorter sermons on record. Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days, did result in the wicked city of Nineveh repenting. So there's a model of missions right there in Jonah. Esther and Daniel were exiles to foreign lands, ended up in Babylon and Persia, but they became the means of grace to share the gospel with and to confront many people with God's word in faraway distant eastern lands. Biblically, if you look at the book of Acts, you can see the apostle Paul is the premier model missionary in so many ways. Paul and Barnabas and later Paul and Titus and uh, Paul and Luke going out uh, throughout the Roman Empire, proclaiming the gospel as a tent maker. Uh, but you can see Paul's model of itinerant ministry, uh, planting churches, Bible study groups, home fellowships throughout the known world at that time, going all the way from Jerusalem, Antioch, all the way to Rome itself, ultimately, planting churches that endured for centuries. Uh, he is a great biblical model. In the book of Acts, we get other models like uh, Philip, who took the gospel to uh, the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to um, he's on the road to Gaza, and he ultimately took the gospel back to Ethiopia um, and Sudan. So those are some of the biblical models for missions. What are the historical models for missions? We often speak of William Carey being the father of modern missions. Now, William Carey did a phenomenal work. Uh, he was a shoemaker who became later one of the greatest Bible translators in history, translated the Bible, New Testaments, and Gospels into 36 countries, had vast amounts of Bibles printed in Eastern languages and scripts that had never before uh, been printed. He was the father of print technology in Asia, um, of education for both genders in India, uh, the pioneer of the first 
tertiary education in the whole of Asia, first Christian college, Rampa College in all of Asia. William Carey is a great missionary model. Now, he launched a denominational mission. He launched the particular Baptist Calvinist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen, which today has been shortened down to Baptist Missionary Society, but that's not what he called it. He called the particular Calvinist Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. Long-winded, but very descriptive. So he had a denominational basis. The missionaries who went out in his model were ordained men. They were men and they were ordained, trained in the gospel, and they had the support of their congregations and denominations behind them. That was the model for many missionaries uh, for centuries. And then the second great wave of missions was launched by Hudson Taylor, who launched the first interdenominational faith missions. And that's back in the 1850s. Hudson Taylor, um, who was the pioneer of the idea of interdenominational missions and drawing lay people, whereas William Carey's model drew ordained ministers and missionaries uh, who had Bible college and theological training. Hudson Taylor was drawing on lay people. He also pioneered having missionaries who could be single men and single women. Some women had gone to the mission field before, but they would have gone as wives uh, along with their husbands, whereas now Hudson Taylor would encourage single men, single women to go to the field as well from any denomination, and they may have had the support of an individual congregation behind them, but not a denominational financial backing, which is why he pioneered the, inter the faith mission model where every member had to trust God for the fulfillment of their needs. Um, and a classic example of this is C.T. Studd, C.T. Studd, who himself became a major pioneer as well, uh, launching what became one of the greatest missions in the world, WEC, Worldwide Evangelization for Christ. C.T. Studd actually had a huge fortune donated to him, came from a rich family. You would have thought, well, how ideal for faith missions. No, he gave it all away, everything. All of his inheritance he gave away to missions like Salvation Army, D.L. Moody's Bible College, um, and uh, he put his money into um, ministry from one side of England and India through to America, and then he went by faith. His wife, Priscilla Studd, refused to be outdone by her husband. She gave away all of her funds as well and also lived by faith. So they were quite an extreme example of living by faith, not even taking their own family inheritances and resources as God's provision they decided well, we are going to give that all away and trust God to provide us over and above, which is why C.T. Studd was called fool and fanatic. And he said, well, people cheered me when I was a fanatic in sports. He was England's top cricketer. And he gave up his career in cricketing as well uh, for being a missionary. So C.T. Studd's an extreme example of uh, living by faith. But C.T. Studd's model uh, in uh, the... Worldwide Evangelization Crusade and Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission Model became the inspiration for many other faith missions, such as Operation Mobilization, uh, Youth with a Mission, who required her people to raise their own support and, in fact, will expect them to take 20% off of what they raise to go to the general administration of the mission itself. Now, the mission I worked with and learned through was Hospital Christian Fellowship, Francis Grimm founded HCF and uh, 
His model was based on Chinese land missions idea of each missionary must raise their own support. So in the time that I worked at Hospital Christian Fellowship, I never got any support whatsoever and expected to, and that meant not so much as a vehicle or uh, funds for getting a train ticket or bus ticket. I hitchhiked around the country to do the work I was sent on by them, and they took that as normal because they sort of read C.T. Studd and Hudson Taylor for uh, weekly and lunchtime devotions. That was serious inspiration. So um, historically, you've got either the denominational model or the interdenominational model, either support from a denomination or the faith mission model. And similarly, from William Carey, ordained ministers going out into the field, to Hudson Taylor's mobilizing lay people into the field. So those are the main models for missions that you've got. Um, and that historically has mobilized some of the biggest missionary movements in history, such as China Inland Mission, which at the end of the 19th century had over a thousand full-time missionaries in China alone. How do faith missions differ from traditional missions? Well, traditional missions would be, if you think of the denominational missions, whether it is London Missionary Society or the Church Missionary Society, the Baptist Missionary Society and so on, where they've got a full denomination behind them um, and therefore their support is guaranteed because the churches have their own offerings and congregations send a certain amount to the denomination. Denomination sets aside a portion for their missionary activities. So people have assured support. And that's why you can see phenomenal missionary activities done by, for example, the Dutch Reformed Church in South African history, and they've got good organization, they've got the backing of the whole denomination, and they've built tremendous mission stations such as Nkoma up in Malawi, and uh, uh, they've got, um, um, is it Morrison or Morningstar in, in Zimbabwe, and everything from hospitals, theological colleges, the whole denomination, it's like you could think of an ocean liner. An ocean liner can carry a lot of weight and it can go great distances. It's got great power. Um, but then you get the interdenominational missions are more like a, a smaller speedboat. They can go faster because they don't have as much bureaucratic control, but they can't go as far. They can't carry as much weight because they're much smaller. So that faith missions, whether you're thinking about the small a faith mission, or even the big ones like Operation Mobilization, um, they are different from traditional missions in that they're not engaging in traditional fundraising methods. They're not having the offerings such as the local churches have. Uh, the traditional missions traditionally would require ordained people to join them. If you don't have theological training, in the case of the Dutch Form Church, you would need to be a university graduate in theology to be able to even apply to them, whereas the faith mission uh, would tend to be international and would take lay people. Those would be some of the most um, serious differences. But you can also think traditional missionaries uh, have come with a lot of weight of the full denomination behind them, whereas the faith missionaries tend to be from interdenominational groups which don't have that kind of funding. They are needing to be more innovative as to how they get their funds. Some, such as Operation Mobilization, chose to use book ministry as their primary way of funding. And in the early days, George Ferver, the founder of OM, required all the missionaries to be book salesmen. And so the mission grew by people selling books and Bibles on the streets or door to door and taking little fold-out card tables 
putting them up in a marketplace or outside a train station bus stop and selling books as they can and Bibles. And this was how they funded everything. And so basically, if their missionary didn't sell enough books or Bibles, they didn't have money for accommodation, food or transport. And uh, that was the fuel. Book sales, Bible sales, they were both distributing the word and they were getting into conversations, using it as a point of contact, but they were also funding the work through uh, the book and Bible sales. So you you can get that style uh, of of being able to operate um, in the sense of uh, creatively finding ways of funding your own work as you go along. How did Frontline Fellowship come to be a faith mission? Well, having been converted to Christ in 1977, my first mission field, so to speak, was in the army. Um, my military call-up national service was required. And before that, I had, because I'd come down from Rhodesia, I was not on the South African call-up list because I hadn't been um, in the South African schooling for that long. So my national call-up came up a year and a half after my um, finishing high school. And uh, during that time in between, I joined Hospital Christian Fellowship, worked in Script Union beforehand, and this gave me experience in ministry before I went into the army. So in the military, I already had a vision of missions and Hospital Christian Fellowship's whole model was more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. Therefore, evangelize doctors, nurses, pharmacists, medical professionals, and see that there's Bible studies established in every hospital so that they can reach other medical professionals and the patients on a regular basis. The idea being that, well, communists might be able to close down a church, but they can't close down a hospital. And so hospitals have continued to be working even behind enemy lines in communist Eastern Europe and Soviet Union. Uh, hospitals were a very effective way of ongoing ministry, even in uh, closed countries. So when I went into the army, I was a bit frustrated because while I'd wanted to be a soldier all my life up till then, now I'd converted, I just want to be a missionary. And I went in with a slightly negative attitude, like oh, I'm going to waste the next two years of my life. And God convicted me of this bad attitude early on and basically lift up your eyes, look around. Is the field not white and harvest? And looking around and listening, well, just quite evident I was in the middle of a mission field surrounded by people who in many cases were obviously unregenerate. And how could I be complaining that I'm not in a mission field because obviously I'm right in one. If hospitals are a mission field, then is the military not? So at my first opportunity, our first Sunday, as the chaplain was giving the service, I asked him at the end if I could say something to the men, and he graciously let me. So I stood up and turned around and faced a hall of maybe 500 men, and uh, they're all looking like me. Uh, here's Sean, a uh, little stubble uh, in brown uniforms, uh, and it was a bit terrifying, but I said to him, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. I want to honor him in my next two years here. If anyone else feels the same, please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and prayer fellowship. And that was the beginning of our mission. We started Bible study and prayer fellowship. And this group grew and it kept growing through the years. Uh, so that at the end of our two years national service, we had 84 in our last Bible study and prayer meeting. Uh, now that was from three separate companies at a celebration service on our last night in in the army, actually in the very same hall, Winella Hall, 
uh, where I'd first made that stand during a chaplain service. And coming out of the army, we had this vision of recruiting Christians from military background to go into the war-torn areas, go into our neighboring countries, what they called the frontline states, uh, Zambia, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe called themselves the frontline states because they were in the frontline of the war against South Africa. And so um, we, having come out of the frontline army, saw ourselves as a fellowship of people who were going to take the gospel into these communist-controlled um, areas where the gospel was restricted and even persecuted, in the case of Mozambique and Angola, very violently. And so with my background in HCF, I modeled frontline in many ways on the only mission that I really knew, which was Hospital Christian Fellowship and the examples they'd given of CT Stud, Hudson Taylor, Faith Missions. So Frontline Fellowship started from the very beginning. We decided we're not going to make an emphasis on fundraising and money. Many ministries seem to do that. We're going to go the other way. So while there's nothing wrong with taking up an offering to cover ministry expenses, I determined not to. And so we never took up an offering in the last 40 years of our mission. Others may have taken up offerings on our behalf. And we're grateful for that. But we've never required or requested it, nor as a mission have we ever engaged in direct fundraising. Despite conducting speaking tours in 38 countries and four continents, I've never required speakers' fees. People have often asked, oh, what will it cost to bring you out to this conference or this speaking tour or whatever? And freely you've received, freely, freely give. That's the principle. And I've never taken up royalties for any of the over 40 books I've written and published. All proceeds from all our books go directly into the mission. So everything that's been accomplished in and through our mission in over 40 years has been entirely due to God's grace alone and received by faith alone. And of course, many people ask, how on earth is it possible that you could have a ministry without a viable source of income? And uh, how can any organization operate without fundraisers? Well, Francis Grimm, the founder of Hospital Christian Fellowship, taught me how to live by faith. When he issued me the call to come to Kempton Park, uh, I was in Cape Town. I was 1,400 kilometers away, more than 1,000 miles away. And I'd really been living and ministering by faith for some months, so I no longer had so much as one rand to my name. And I had to trust the Lord even for the train fare to reach Kempton Park. And God did provide. And when Uncle Francis sent me on countrywide tours to visit every Christian bookshop in the country to promote hard publishers' materials, I needed to do so by hitchhiking. And so while hitchhiking, you can imagine you're trusting God for every single lift, but it was quite an opportunity. Um, I hitchhiked over 140,000 kilometers in the early years of this work. One occasion I needed to get from Johannesburg to Port Elizabeth in less than a day, and knowing that it was virtually impossible, having done that route before through hitchhiking, I went to Lanseria Airport, asked the control tower if they knew of any aircraft flying through to Port Elizabeth that day. Well, incredibly, a new helicopter, a Bell helicopter, was about to be delivered to PE. And when I explained my dilemma to the pilot, he cheerfully offered me a free ride. So in a matter of hours, I was able to travel in comfort and style to my speaking engagements in Eastern Cape. And all of these hitchhiking opportunities gave me the opportunities to witness to hundreds of motorists and a few pilots and to distribute gospel literature very widely. So, uh, for example, when setting off on my first mission to Mozambique by motorbike, funds were so low, I did not actually have sufficient means to purchase the fuel to reach Mozambique. At one petrol station at King Williamstown, 
The owner of the fuel station came out and asked questions about the Christian stickers on my heavily laden off-road motorbike, which it, it would look kind of unusual seeing this motorbike piled high with big backpack and film uh, reels on the back, six days of 16 mil, four reels of the Jesus film and all that. What are you doing? So I explained my mission to Mozambique and after he filled my tank in for me that this was on the house and no payment was necessary. Well, I mean, those are some exhilarating examples, but it doesn't always go that easy, of course. On many occasions, I was camping out uh, in a park or by the side of the road in pouring rain sometimes, and I've slept in Wendy houses and tree houses and police cells, some very friendly police willing to let me stay in the prison cells, which were clean and neat with clean sheets and pillows, and they left the metal gates open, uh, which is nice, um, sometimes in telephone booths. And, uh, you know, traveling in that way, you see all sorts of interesting things. One thing that reminds us how we live in a different world, churches didn't used to be closed at all. And so at night I could go to a church, especially the Anglican churches, and they'd be unlocked and you could get inside and lie in a pew or sleep on a carpet roll out your sleeping bag. And, and there was no danger or problem. Forget about security gates and alarms and motion sensors. They didn't so much as lock the front door. Uh, it just shows you how we used to have a very different society. So I could often sleep in churches. And uh, I remember one very hot time I was sleeping in the baptismal tank in a Baptist church in Port Alfred because that was the coolest place in the church. It wasn't water and it was empty, but it was it was a tiled um, baptismal front in the front of the church, and that was just the best place for my sleep bag on that occasion. So hitchhiking around, I I saw God provide, and sometimes even with fuel. The first two times I received invitations to minister to Europe, I received extraordinary encouragement and essential provision when just before my departure I went past the post office box, found an envelope sent by Reverend Erlo Stegen, with hundreds of Deutschmark in cash in the letter. Now, that's again a day when the post office was reliable and when a person could send cash in an envelope without much fear uh, that it would be pilfered on the way. Well, there was no way that Uncle Erlo could have known of my impending mission to Germany and to Eastern Europe, so the timing was incredible. And this happened twice. And at no other time did I receive Deutschmark in the mail, except on those occasions when I was en route there. I mean, that just shows how God can put somebody in touch with your need and just guide them. Well, when the wars in Mozambique and Angola came to an end in 1994, the Holocaust in Rwanda erupted, and I knew I had to get there. But I didn't have enough funds for an air ticket to East Africa. Well, I investigated and found out I had sufficient frequent flyer miles accumulated for a free air ticket to Nairobi through South African Airways, back when South African Airways was operational and effective and efficient. Through missionary contacts and correspondence in the area, I was able to get into Rwanda and deliver Bibles to prisoners um, in, in Kini Rwandan language in Rwanda, even people on death row. And I hitchhiked with hundreds of Bibles into South Sudan, made contact with the Persecute Church. And that's also when Reverend Kenneth Beringwa tracked me down and gave me the Macedonian call, you must come to Moraland. Well, how could I do so? The distances were so vast, and Sudan is one of the greatest, largest countries in Africa, and the expense were impossible for a little mission. 5,000 kilometers to go from Cape Town to Sudan at that stage, but by road. The distances were beyond us. We need to trust the Lord for the resource to drive overland to Sudan. That's, that's a lot of money for fuel. 
And many of the areas we need to reach were behind enemy lines and couldn't be reached by road. So I had to start to trust the Lord for funds to charter aircraft to smuggle thousands of Bibles to remote areas in Western Equatoria. And the Lord provided to a blind friend of mine, Brent Noble, who raised, and now he was a fundraiser. I never could raise funds, but Brent could raise funds. He raised sufficient funds from students to Summit Ministry to enable me to charter dozens of flights and deliver hundreds of thousands of Bibles and Christian books in 24 languages to 14 different regions of Sudan. And that included DC-3s, turboprop conversion, Second World War vintage um, aircraft flying in, you know, the kind of planes that flew in uh, a bridge too far and D-Day landings. And they would take me into Sudan, ex-South African Air Force planes with ex-South African Air Force pilots, mercenaries willing to fly for hire in no-fly zones. You fly, you die. Um, no-fly zones. And we would go in treetop skimming uh, to be below the radar uh, to get in and deliver these Bibles. Absolutely amazing. But when you look at it, we took in hundreds of thousands of Bibles into Sudan. We got hundreds of thousands of Bibles printed, massive print runs, and it was all funded by faith without any actual fundraising from our mission. So it's quite extraordinary uh, to be able to achieve so much with such limited resources and without the backing of any denomination or big organization. So our mission's got a 40-year track record. Many of these stories are in our Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ book. So I managed to personally conduct over 27 missions into Sudan, all by faith, conducting over 1,200 preaching engagements and meeting seminars and conferences inside Sudan during the war. And our mission has conducted over 80 missions to Sudan. Um, other people involved in those two, in addition to my 27. Uh, so living by faith in our mission has been the way we've accomplished everything so far because you cannot in a human sense explain how our mission could have funded so many operations in so many countries so far from Cape Town carrying tons of Bibles and tons of medicines too, by the way, over the years, not only to Sudan but Angola and Mozambique as well. What other missions operate as faith missions? Probably the most famous would be Operation Mobilization and Youth with a Mission. They're two huge um, missions and they fund their ways by having every member raise sufficient support for it. But there are many other ones you could think of too. I think New Tribes Mission and um, uh, I believe Wycliffe Bible Translates would also be a faith mission. What other missionary models are there? Well, one would be the tent-making model, because if you think that the very first um, missionary in the Bible, in a sense, Abraham, he was a farmer, a very successful and, and well-funded farmer. He had huge herds, and Abraham was therefore self-supporting. Uh, Paul was a tent-maker, and so Paul uh, supplemented his work. Uh, there were places where he ministered where he wrote in his letters that he received no support from them, but he earned his way by his tent making. He could make tents. And so this has become a term in Scripture that as Paul used tent making, many people might use their skills to fund their way. So one of the popular tent making models would be a person going into a communist country and being a teacher there or being a translator teaching English second language or something like that. So I know of a number of missionaries in Muslim countries or even communist China who are there as teachers. And so teaching is a good model um, to fund. It's a Christian missionary 
ministry in and of itself, but to enable people to get into especially restricted access countries. And uh, there are, of course, other missions in South Africa very successful who have the farming model. So Kwasi Samantha Mission, which is without doubt the most successful, blessed, effective mission in the continent of Africa, they operate as a self-supporting farm model. They've got a very effective farm, a commercial farm that's not only making them self-sufficient, for the needs of their missionaries and their guests to their host, but are able to export food far and wide, even overseas, and it funds their conferences, their seminars, to the extent that Kwasamantu missions never taken up an offering, not at their conferences, they don't charge people coming for conferences and seminars, and to think they can host 7,000 or more young people and not charge them a thing, provide them with three meals a day, I mean, think of the logistics, Thousands of children, if you add the children who live on a base as well, it could be like 8,000 people are catering for at one time. Three meals a day, they don't charge a person a thing. And there's tea, and there's desserts, and a whole lot of other things. And accommodation, they don't charge anything. More than that, they even send out their vehicles, collect people, and bring them back. How can they do that? Well, they couldn't if they didn't have a successful self-supporting farming model. And they do the same with the ministers' conferences. You could get ministers coming in, the last ministers' conference I spoke at, there were over 2,000 ministers from over 60 countries. Well, they're hosting them there because they've got a very efficient model of not only a farm, but in fact, they've got a water bottling factory. They've got some magnificent spring water that's some of the purest water in the country. Now, because they're well run, they're able to be, they've got some people in the mission who they put their full attention onto these works. Some people do it part-time and others can focus entirely on on the ministry of preaching, teaching, counseling, and everything else that's involved. Now, interestingly enough, Quest of Intermission, we learned by the book Bond Servant of Christ, which has recently come out from Elfrida Fleischmann. Bond Servant of Christ shows that this model started long before the birth of Erlo Stegen. His grandparents came out to South Africa as part of a tremendous missionary initiative from Germany. There was a revival in Germany back in the 1800s in the Hermannsburg and Hamburg area, in Louis Harms, a very blessed, gifted minister of the gospel in Germany, saw the vision of sending missionaries to Africa. But looking at the cost of ship um, fares, he worked out that it was cheaper to just build their own ship. So unbelievably, they built an ocean-going vessel um, called the Candace, after Queen Candace, Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip giving the gospel to the treasurer of Queen Candace, who brought the gospel basically to Sudan after that. So the Candace brought large amounts of families to Africa. Now, their model was self-sufficient communities. So they didn't only send out the theologically trained minister of the gospel as the key missionary, but a community of carpenters, farmers, and other artisans who went with them to be a support so that the missionary would not be on his own. The missionary would be part of a community. So they were sending whole communities to Africa, and it was a one-way ticket. They weren't coming back. They were going to Africa for life. And these are where the ancestors of Erlo Stegen, the missionaries who at Quasabantu today came from. They grew out of revival in Germany. They came to Africa to stay, to settle, and to bring the gospel to the Zulu. And they um, built effective farms and businesses which have become the foundation, the economic foundation, and the communities from where the missionaries can work. So you go to Kwasibanta Mission, you see something absolutely unique. Even more than Khanadendal, Kuruman, 
of London missionary side and other great missionary models of the past, you've got vibrant farms, very effective industries carrying on there. You go to Quasimanta Mission, it's more than just, when I say just a farm, it's a massive farm, 580 hectares of phenomenal farming, some of the most advanced farming imaginable too, really cutting edge and international quality materials, uh, whether you're talking about the avocados, the pineapples, the papaya, uh, the uh, dragon fruit, whatever they're growing, it's, it's, it's such good quality, it's sold in the best, most um, selective shops in the country, or it is exported overseas. And in addition to that, they have got a top-class radio station, they've got an excellent a school, they've got excellent teacher training college, they have pottery shop, they have uh, the carpenter shop, they have their own um, supermarket-type shop for the com local community because they're very far from any other areas where people would have to travel in to do any of their shopping. They are innovative on so many levels that, um, I mean, their dairy, their yogurts, their um, uh, milk products, uh, everything that you can imagine that comes out of uh, this very effective farming community enables the gospel to go forward and to fund gospel work so that they've been able to plant missions overseas, everywhere from Paraguay to Romania and uh, in in Russia itself, all over the world. You've got uh, different outposts from this very effective mission. And that's also fulfillment of the vision of Louis Holmes. Louis Holmes saw the vision that these missionaries they're sending to Africa would one day, their descendants would bring missionaries back to Europe. And he anticipated the time that Europe might need to receive missionaries from Africa to remind them of the gospel that they've taken for granted. So you do get models of tent making, and it is possible. Of course, we've seen through the years, many missions have used farming as a basis to be able to fund them. But I don't think there's ever been a more effective economic model of being a self-supporting mission that's a faith mission that doesn't need to take up offerings or even charge people for conferences than Kwasi Sabanta Mission in Zuland. And uh, the book Bondservant of Christ uh, is a tremendous insight to the, the depth, the history, the background of this mission and just how effective um, one person and one community can be and how much impact the gospel can have in every area of life. So that is an amazing uh, achievement. Can't recommend Bond Servant of Christ enough. I think it should be required reading in any uh, Bible cultural mission training because it shows an example of excellence. What are some of the biblical principles involved in faith missions? Well, all missions should be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Holy Spirit-led. And so we don't want to be so caught up in the world that we become like salesmen needing to continually be talking about money and uh, we want to focus on the work. And in that way, I, I think if you just look biblically, the children of Israel had to learn to follow the presence of God as it was manifested by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Now, just as the children of Israel were required to step into the river Jordan before the Lord parted the waters, we need to be responsive to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to stand up, step out, and launch out in faith. And we had an example of this. In 2011, um, I was planning an overland mission to Sudan, and uh, we struggled. We had to trust the Lord for purchasing the four-wheel drive vehicle that we needed, the specialized four-wheel drive trailer that could also serve as carrying the tons of literature that wouldn't fit on just the roof rack in the back of the, the vehicle, uh, the four-wheel drive vehicle, but also had a bit of a tenting, camping, 
uh, if it's um, disassembled on the back and a mobile kitchen and the four-wheel drive a trailer became important. Well, even once we acquired the vehicles and packed it, stocked it and had Bibles and books either packed or pre-positioned, we still didn't have the funds needed for all the fuel and the fuel overland to Sudan was in the thousands of rands. So we actually fully equipped, fully packed, loaded our vehicle and the team was already on the road to Sudan before the funds came in from the support of the mission to enable the team to reach a destination. So sometimes you need to step out in faith. If you think in terms of the pillar of fire by night, it can be very cold in the desert at night. The closer you remain to the flame, the better for you. And it can be very hot during day, just as well to stay as close to the cloud as possible to get shade, shade by day and fire by night and warmth by night. And so many a time we need to just stand up, step out and launch out in faith as we see in the in the wilderness, the whole of the book of Exodus is full of analogies of the Christian pilgrimage. And we need to be determined not to be deterred by dangers, diseases, risks involved in ministering in conflict areas. So missions must be by faith. We have to trust God for his provision and for his protection and for his guidance and for his blessing. So those are key principles in missions. We need God's provision. We need God's protection. We need his guidance and we need his blessing on what we're doing. So in a real sense, it is by faith. Think of a farmer, uh, he can plow the field, he can plant the seeds, he can cultivate and he can irrigate, but at the end of the day, only God can make the seed grow and only God can make the sun rise uh, and shine and only God can send the rain at the right time. So a farmer does everything he can, then he trusts God to do everything he cannot. So in faith missions, I don't have the right to lie in bed and say, God provide what we need, I've got to get up and I've got to work and I've got to work hard and I've got to do everything I can do. A key part in a faith mission would be communication. Communicating, in our case, by newsletters, prayer letters, emails, on the web, Facebook pages, this kind of program like From the Frontline podcast, speaking tours, meetings, camps and courses. We do what we can. We order the Bibles, we write the books, we produce the leadership training materials, we pre prepare our lectures, our presentations, our lecture notes, manuals, whatever we need. We do everything we can. And then we trust God for what we cannot, for him to send the funds needed, to send the volunteers needed, that we can do the work, that we'll have enough teams, and sometimes the invitations. Although, to be honest, in our mission, that's the last thing we need to worry about. We always get more invitations and requests for ministry than we have funds and volunteers and resources or days in the year to fulfill all those needs. So that's what a faith mission needs. We need, we need people. We need personnel, we need uh, petrol, printing, uh, there is, of course, you need fuel and finances, all these different requirements, but the key principle is you do everything you possibly can, and then you can trust God for everything that's outside of your power, for whatever you cannot, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. How can we learn more about effective missions to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, my father-in-law, Bill Bathman, uh, was a missionary for 67 years, and his testimony is full of examples of living by faith, going through and going on, were two of his great books which testify a lifetime of ministering behind the Iron Curtain. And his good friend, Brother Andrew's God Smuggler book is really phenomenal to get examples of how that mission was launched by faith, open doors, and how Brother Andrew was provided for in his little beetle. Absolutely amazing. Our book, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, came out at the anniversary of 40 years of Frontline, so it 
It details the first 40 years of Frontline Fellowship, lots of answers to prayer and miracles and protection and provision, protection under fire, in prison, behind enemy lines. And uh, so those are some great examples that you can get inspiration for it. I think if you want to go onto the Kwasi Subantu website, www.ksb.org.za, KSB short for Kwasi Subantu Mission, and Kwasi Subantu means place that helps people in Zulu. That's what the local people called it. And so they adopted the name. Uh, you know, you think how Methodists were being derided with the term Methodist, and then they just took it for themselves. And interesting how sometimes people call you things and you, you adopt it and say, okay, that's what we are. And uh, so ksb.org.za is one website. And then our main website, frontlinemissionsa.org, or in North America, Frontline Mission NA, or is it Frontline NA? Frontline Mission NA.org. FrontlineMissionNA.org, and you can order our books uh, such as Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, Faith and Defiance at Hand, Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, from FrontlineMissionNA.org as well, if you're in North America. So uh, getting on these websites, you'll see some videos. And I recommend if you go on the Quasis Adventure Mission or KSB.org.ca website, take the virtual tour. Uh, they've got some great videos, and you can see the choirs and um get a tour of the place going around and just see the variety of missionary activities and initiatives there and just think, well, that's an example of what started as a faith mission and it's it's a tent-making model, but it's phenomenally successful and lots and lots of fruit. So those are some great sources. Getting on the newsletter mailing list, you'll get, if you are on Frontline's email list, you get our prayer and praise updates, which give updates on the last couple of months on answers to prayer projects and priorities and provisions from the Lord. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, for joining us tonight and talking about stepping out in faith, living by faith. This is Ryan Underwood with From the Frontline. God bless and good night.